Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. What goes up very often comes down. It's just a matter of how far and how fast the decline. Stocks are no exception, and the past year was a doozy for investors. Foster and Motley's Mark Motley and Joe Patterson are here to talk about market corrections and bear markets. I'm Patrice Sikora. Gentlemen, most investors might agree the difference between a correction and a bear market, well, it rather comes down to how much your nerves and your stomach can handle. What do you think about that? It's an excellent point, Patrice. You know, by definition... A correction is a 10% decline in the market, and a bear market is a 20% decline. And we can start by acknowledging those are fairly arbitrary numbers, but they provide a reference point for investors. Uh, a correction is uncomfortable. Uh, a bear market is a little more painful. And obviously, there have been bear markets with significantly greater declines than the 20% uh, barometer that one needs to reach a bear market. Yeah. Mark, what about the history of these things? Yeah, you know, being aware of the history, I think it's critically important dimension of being an investor because how you deal with declines, be they smaller or larger, is is really important and to to the outcome of your investments because you it's it's very tempting for people to make mistakes in bear markets. And so knowing what to expect and having a plan for how to deal with that in advance is, is critically important. So we can take a look at the history a little bit that, that helps. And this is not that critical to the final analysis, but the fact is that the science is not actually very settled on what is a, a bear market. You can, you can find lists of bear markets and they differ. People define them differently and uh, it doesn't really matter in the end, but it's just, it's tough to find two lists that are exactly the same. Uh, for example, in 1990, there was what I would consider a bear market. It lasted eight months. It was associated with a recession. The market was down 19.9%. Some people don't call that a bear market because it didn't reach that definition. I, I, I will count that. And on the, the uh, great recession episode of 2007 through 2009, I count that as one big 58% or whatever it was down um, bear market. But technically there was a rally in between the rally from a, from an intermediate low that wasn't the final low that was more than 20%. And so some people count that as two distinct smaller bear markets, but so there are different ways to look at it. But, and, and the other thing that I've got to add in is that when you look at the history of bear markets, you have to decide what you're going to do about the great depression. Uh, the great depression happened Bear markets were more severe than subsequently. and But we just don't know if that was a 100-year flood, if you will, or a five or 600-year flood. We don't know how um, likely that is to happen in the future. What we do know is that there was a confluence of uh, particularly egregious policy errors that exacerbated that and made it much worse than it needed to have been. The, the money supply was shrunk when it should have been increased. And the um, taxes, particularly the 
these tariffs, we call it tariffs, were increased when they shouldn't have been. Pretty much every economist agrees that those were bad policy errors today, which is remarkable because economists can't agree on hardly anything. And so, uh, so we look at that and say that perhaps that was a you know, sort of one of a kind of thing that didn't have to be like that, but we don't know. Um, our, I think the right way to, to look at bear markets is to look at, as a lot of, a lot of folks do, to look at it post-World War II. And uh, from that perspective, there were 16 bear markets in the 78 years since World War II, almost one about every five years. Okay. But the cyclicality of that is not regular at all. In, uh, uh, by decade, in the, uh, in the 50s, there was one bear market. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were two, depending on how you count them. Um, in the 90s, there was one, and there were none in the 2000s. Uh, there were, I mean, I'm sorry, there were three in the, in the 2000s and none in the 2010s. And uh, and then we've got two. We're in one right now. Uh, we have two so far in the 2020s. And so uh, what you can say in terms of frequency, at least after the post-Great Depression, post-World War II, is that bear markets occur about one to three, usually, uh, usually one to one or two, but from, from between zero and three um, in a decade, and that's the sort of you know how how often one should expect them. What about the recoveries from a bear market? Are they yeah. do they follow the same pattern? Uh, it tends to be that recoveries are larger after larger. Bear markets are not all the same, and some are deeper than others, and the, the larger recoveries tend to follow the uh, steeper bear markets, but some are faster and some are slower and uh, they all are different. And the other thing that's different is most are associated with recessions, but not all. And so most recessions, every recession has a market decline, but not all market declines associated with recessions are bear markets. In the last 11 recessions, the average decline was almost 31%, but it was a range of minus 14 to minus 57. Three were not bear markets. They technically, they there were substantial declines, substantial corrections in the teens, but not uh, not as much as a uh, a bear market. So, you know, there there are other ways to look at this. One is just to look at what happens on a calendar year basis, frequency of declines, and and that sort of thing. Um, but the point is that they are all different, but that the uh, recoveries after bear markets tend to be stronger than average returns. Mark, you mentioned recession. Give us a quick definition of recession. Well, there is a, uh, a commonly embraced but not official definition of two quarters of decline in in, uh, in GDP, nominal GDP. Okay. But but the uh, uh, the board that defines those actually has some some slightly different criteria. And we, in fact, in twenty twenty, the first two quarters, the the economy slightly declined, but that was not declared a recession. Interesting. I'm sorry. In, I, I just said 20. It's in 2022. 2022? Okay. Yeah. Last year. Well, okay, Mark. Now, we're, we've talked about the downturns and the recessions and the frequencies. But if you have a balanced portfolio, wait a minute. Shouldn't this just be, we'll wait this out? Well, if you have a balanced portfolio or if you have a, a nearly all stock portfolio, of course, you should wait it out unless you've got some crystal ball is going to tell you when these things are going to happen in advance, and we don't uh, see much of that out there. Uh, but uh, with respect to the balance portfolio, that's, that's in some ways more interesting than looking at just a bear market for stocks. 
And uh, uh, and last year in particular was important in terms of getting a sense of what happened. If you take as a proxy for a balanced portfolio, the 60-40, 60% domestic um, stocks, the S&P 500, large stocks, and 40% the 10-year treasury bond, and look at the history of that, last year the stock component of that was not all that bad. Um, and uh, it, for example, was a little worse than average, but uh, it was the not in the worst quartile of, of stock mm-hmm. declines uh, for calendar years. Um, but the balance portfolio was the third worst. There were only two worse in the last 95 years, and the, they were both in the 1930s, 1931, 1937, of course. And the reason is that the bond market, the 10-year treasury bond, had its worst return in the last 95 years, last year. And so uh, last year for the balanced investor was a particularly difficult time because bonds, which sometimes don't even decline when stocks do, usually they do, but not always, but but they almost always tend to mitigate the returns. That didn't happen so much last year. And so that was an aberrant. Hmm. Joe, talk to me about bear markets and corrections. Why do we pay such close attention? Why do they matter? You know, like many of the things we we work with in our world, Patrice, you know, there's there's some subjective and some objective reasons uh, why these matter. You know, from the psychologist perspective, you can't ignore bear markets, right? Uh, you can't ignore corrections, and that's okay. So, so there's an expectation setting element of this. Uh, even in most years when markets have positive returns, we expect volatility, we expect corrections. There are many years. You can look back in in history and see double-digit positive stock market returns with an intra-year ten percent or greater correction. That's fairly that's a fairly common occurrence. So we got used to a long period of, you know, Mark pointed out we in the 2010s we had no bear markets, and for a while there we had very few corrections. Uh, that's not normal, uh, but hindsight is is 2020. But our memories are always a little shorter than that. And you know, we get used to this lack of volatility. And so now that we have, you know, we've had some bear markets recently, right? We had a four-week bear market in 2020. So if you blinked, you mm-hmm. missed it. Uh end of February to end of March 2020, as we were dealing with the onset of COVID. Uh, but these corrections are normal. They allow rebalancing opportunities, both on an asset allocation perspective. So as Mark pointed out, many years when we are having a challenging market in stocks, bonds are holding their own. Sometimes they're positive. If you look back to 2008, uh, stocks down 37% or greater, depending on the index. Investment grade, high quality bonds provided positive returns in 2008. So uh, as Mark pointed out, you wouldn't think a 60-40 portfolio did better in 2008 than it did in 2022. But that was the case because of the move in rates we saw last year and the negative impact that had on bond returns. So that presents opportunities for investors to move in and out of asset classes when stocks are down, sell asset classes that have held up better, buy more stocks. Uh, When individual stocks, some are doing better than others, uh, in different market environments, that presents opportunities to rebalance toward the investments that are not holding up as well. It also impacts financial plans. So when we think about answering the question of, hey, can I retire? Uh, what does that look like for us? 
we have to build an analysis that assumes some return expectations going forward. And obviously the state of the market and looking ahead when thinking about stock valuations, when thinking about yields on your bond investments, uh, that impacts your future return. So the one thing we can say with certainty is when we start the year in 2023, our outlook for returns has improved, right? Because stock valuations have gone down with the market going down. Bond yields have gone up significantly. You can earn interest on many money market funds that were paying you know, close to zero a year ago or paying 4% or greater. So uh, while having a portfolio go down is challenging, both from a psychological and a investment perspective, that does mean that we expect better returns going forward and we incorporate that into financial plans when thinking about answering questions like, can we retire? Have we saved enough? Are we saving enough? Mark, thoughts? Just just an additional thought about the comment on the balance portfolio. Balance 60-40 that I was talking about was terrible last year, worst in, in many, many decades. But that didn't change the fact that it's still a better way to go than for most folks than an all-stock portfolio. A 60-40 portfolio historically has had about three-fourths of the return of an all-stock portfolio, but only about five-eighths of the risk. And so it it has, uh, it's a pretty good trade-off in that regard. And uh, nothing, nothing about last year has changed our view, except that, as Joe mentioned, you know, interest rates are so much better. Bonds are so much more attractive now than they than they were not all that long ago. And uh, the, just bear markets are part of the landscape that go with the territory. No one can avoid those if you're an investor. And so it's important to be aware of them, corrections as, as well, and take advantage of those to rebalance and make that volatility work in your favor as opposed to be something that derails the, the uh, process. What about those people who think they can time the market? Mark and I have yet to be introduced to those people. Uh, <laughs> so if you know them, send them our way. Uh, you know, market timing has been proven. It doesn't work. Sometimes you get lucky, uh, but luck isn't an investment strategy. Mark, any additional thoughts on that? Well, there are folks who think that that's part of what they're going to get when they hire an investment advisor. We try to, to educate folks early. Sometimes they don't hear that until the, the first bear market, and then it kind of sinks in. Um, but the other thing that we sometimes see is a certain logic that, in a, and this happens in the in the deep bear markets, right? Um, markets down 40, 50%. Someone looks at the portfolio and maybe they're balanced, so it's not they're not down, you know, that much, but they're down the portfolio, maybe down 30%. And they look at that and they say, there's a, a not everyone, but there's a, a certain subset of, of investors that, that get to a certain point and they say, I've got to stop. I can't do, I can't experience this again. I can manage at a lower level with this much, but if I lose this much again, then I'm my my retirement is sunk. And and they think for some reason that because the market just did that, that, that it's only halfway there and it's going to do that much again going forward. And they want to make a chain or you know, bail out of stocks at, at a time that is, you know, would be the most harmful for them. And so every deep bear market, we always have, unfortunately, a couple of conversations. Usually we're able to persuade them against, you know, out of uh, making that kind of mistake. But there are some people who are their own worst enemies and, and naturally tend to fall into that kind of logic. Any final thoughts, guys, before we uh, wrap this one up? 
This has been a great discussion, by the way. Great discussion. Patrice, I think there is one timing discussion that is is relevant. Uh, it's not market timing, but it is the idea that uh, and it impacts our folks heading into or, or newly in retirement. What happens if I retire and then we have a year like 2022 or we have multiple years like 2022 in a row? This is known as sequencing risk. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, the order of the returns impacts the rate of success in your plan. So if you know you're going to average 6% and I was going to get 6% every year, then you know, that would make my job as a planner really easy. Uh, but it could be that I get 10, 10, 10, and then negative 15, negative 10, and I happen to retire uh, in the year preceding those two negative returns. So the idea is that when you are drawing out of your portfolio and the value is lower, uh, that's more impactful to the portfolio. You have less dollars to start the year. You're taking distributions uh, that fund your needs in retirement. And if the market is down and thus your portfolio is down, potentially you're drawing it down at a quicker rate than you would have otherwise been if you kind of had a steady positive return. Or if you retired and you got a nice couple tailwind years with really really strong returns at your back. So that's a real risk, but it can be mitigated in several ways. One Mark's already touched on is uh, have a balanced portfolio, be diversified. So if you have all your investments in stocks and the market's down big, then your portfolio is going to be down a lot. And it's going to potentially increase the impact of those sequencing risks. So have a diversified portfolio, uh, have a portfolio that generates reliable income, not only do you want to have diversified investments so you can draw out of the investments that are holding up better, but your first line of defense in funding distributions from your portfolio is is income. So a portfolio that has stocks that generate good dividend yields, uh, that has bonds that generate good interest, uh, and that it's repeatable and reliable, meaning if we have tough years like 2022, we aren't looking at a bunch of companies in the portfolio who are cutting dividend yields. Uh, And then there's a third piece of it, which is that the amount you draw out from your portfolio as a percentage is significantly impactful to sequencing risk. So in other words, if you spend less or temporarily spend less, and we've seen this with our clients, if you roll back to 2008, probably you'd look at many people doing less discretionary spending than they otherwise would, whether they did it very deliberately where they did it subconsciously, uh, you make adjustments. You, tr- you trim the fat a little bit, you cut back. Uh, so that spending management and you know being a little leaner in years when markets are tough is a great way to mitigate sequencing risk. I might add that a listener might, might think, now, wait a minute, if there's a series of returns, even, even two years of returns, and say one's positive, one's negative, this is a multiplicity process. If you have one year and the other year, doesn't matter which one comes first, um, you get the same outcome in the end. And the response to that is, yes, but. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're not doing withdrawals. If you are doing withdrawals, then there are different dollars in the different time frames. And if you're doing, if you're steadily withdrawing a portfolio to say nothing over over an extended period of time, then at the end of that time, there's small dollars. At the beginning of the time, there's large dollars. So if the losses happen in the periods when there are large dollars and the big gains happen when there's small dollars, then you don't have the same return. So the degree to which people 
take out more than the income that's being generated in portfolio, that's the degree to which they have sequencing risk. And to the extent that they're not taking out more of the income, they don't have any sequencing risk at all. So it matters a lot for some and, and not much for others. Got it. Gentlemen, how can listeners reach you? Because I'm sure there'll be lots of questions after this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, Patrice, uh, you can find us uh, on our website, uh, com, or feel free to call us at our 1-800 number, 1-800-532-2962. All right. And we'll follow this podcast, of course, share with others, and we thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Keep in mind that rules and regulations are subject to change. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.